Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. Judges chapter 9. Is everybody there? All right. Well, let's just do a little bit of review from last week because chapter 9 flows from chapters 6, 7, and 8. Who did we look at last week? We looked at Gideon. And if you remember, Gideon started out well. He followed the Lord. He was anointed of the Lord. He had the small army of 300. Um, And then at the end of his life, what did he say? Oh, don't make me king. They wanted to make him king. He's like, don't make me king. But yet he took the ephod for himself. It became a snare. And then basically he kind of acted like a king. And what did he name his son? My my father is king. Okay. So let's go back up to verse 29 of chapter 8. Because that's going to set the stage for chapter 9. So let's just back up to chapter 8, verse 29. Jerubal, the son of Jeb, remember Jerubal is another name for Gideon. So that's, there's two names for Gideon in the Bible. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Orprah of the Abierzerites. Okay, so how many sons does Gideon have? Seventy sons. Except for there's one illegitimate son of his prostitute. And what's that kid's name? Abimelech. Well, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little illegitimate. Okay, so Abimelech means my father is king. Okay, so he names him that. All right, let's keep going. Verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. Before we get into chapter 9, chapter 8, the very end, verses 33 through 35, the danger of forgetting. Look at verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, what did the people do? They turned again. They repented in the wrong direction. They turned back to idol worship. And my translation says they whored after the Baals. Does yours say something like prostituted or harlotted. It's this imagery of actually going after a prostitute in the sense that they were going after false gods. And look at verse 34. The people of Israel did not remember. We've seen this before in the book of Judges. Here's the problem with Israel. What happens to them? They do not remember. Now, does that mean they forgot who God was? No, it means that they are consciously making a choice to say, 
I could care less who the God of Israel is. I know he's delivered us. I know he used Gideon's small army. I know that we defeated the Midianites. I don't really care. The gods of Baal are more enticing, more alluring. I'm going to go to them. Now, my question is why is it so easy to quote unquote forget the faithfulness of the Lord and turn to idolatry? What causes us to quote unquote forget the Lord? There's probably a lot of reasons why we forget. Is it for lack of knowledge? You guys list off, what are some reasons why we forget who God is? Why do we so easily turn to idols? Okay, because of your neighbors. Your, other people around you are doing it. So peer pressure, neighbors, it's, it's easier when everybody else is doing it. Okay. Pride. pride. What do you mean by pride, Jerry? Because you're thinking more of yourself than you are. Okay, you're thinking more of yourself than anybody else. Yeah. You're, not, you're, not, you're not reading, you're not praising God for the things you do. You're praising yourself. Okay, you're not praising God, you're praising yourself. Pride. Okay, so pride, peer pressure. Let's think of another P word to make it like alliteration. Pride, peer pressure, power, I don't know, prestige, popularity. I don't know, those are all different P. There's a lot of different reasons why we forget who God is. And that's always going to be Israel's downfalls. They're going to forget who God is. Now, one of the things that happens in these cycles, remember what's the cycle, okay? Let's just draw it here on the board. The people are idolatrous, right? They're in idolatry. What happens? They get oppressed by pagans, okay? They get oppressed by a pagan king or a pagan army. What then do they do? They cry out to God. Is this crying out true repentance or is it more, well, we don't like what's going on. So it's, okay. And so God in His grace doesn't have to answer their cries for help, but He does. In His grace, He raises up a judge. He raises up a deliverer. And what does that deliverer do? He delivers them. And then they have, what, like let's say 40 years, or they have X amount of years of peace. Now here's the tipping point in this problem. After the judge dies, usually like it says the judge dies, and there's this, this period of peace. What happens during the period of peace that it brings them right back to where? The idolatry all over again. But what happens? When you remove the leader, when there's no leader in Israel, no recognized leader, what do the people do? They cannot be faithful on their own. They have to rely upon that leader. Okay? So one of the key issues in the book of Judges is poor leadership. The dilemma of poor leadership. Now, what was the big issue for the people that they wanted to make? They wanted to make Gideon king, right? And what does he say? Don't make me king. There's only one king. God is king. But what does he name his son? Abimelech, my father's king. Okay. So as we move into chapter 9, let's find out what Abimelech does. Okay. So part 1, 
Abimelech makes himself king. Okay, so chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, that's Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belbereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Orprah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubal, Seventy men on one stone, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. How things would have been different if Gideon had not had a concubine. What does Abimelech do? He marches into Shechem. And what does he say? Basically, he persuades his relatives and the leaders of the city to make him king. What does he say? You all need one guy to rule over you, not these 70 sons of Gideon. It's better to have one king. And I'm your king. I'm your flesh. I'm your blood. And so what, is, what do they do? They actually, he gets them to pay them money. Pay him money. They pay him money. And he goes and hires some thugs to be his entourage. Okay, what does it say there? Verse 4, they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baral Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So he had these worthless and reckless guys following him around as his personal entourage as he made himself king. What's the first act of the king? What does he do? He goes back to Gideon's house. Remember, Gideon's dead now. And what does he do? kills 69 of the 70 of Gideon's sons. His, I guess you'd call them stepbrothers, because remember, he's the son of a concubine. Now, who's left? Jotham, the youngest son, and he's hiding out. Now, let's just ask ourselves a question. Is this good? Do you want a king like this? How in the past, in the book of Judges, has God raised up a leader? A couple of ways we've seen. Either the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, you're going to be a leader, or the Spirit of the Lord comes upon that person and he's anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Here you have a son of a concubine whose name is my father is king, by force, by persuasion, by extortion, go make himself king and then kills all of the rightful heirs to the throne if there ever such, was such a thing. Now, was there a kingship in, in Israel at this time? No. Okay. Now, where did this all happen? In verse 6, all the leaders of Shechem came together, all of Beth Milo came together, and what did they do? They went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Where's this happening? Verse 6 tells us this is happening at 
Shechem, which is a very important city in Israel's history. Especially if you go back and you think about Jacob. So what else happened at Shechem? And why is it ironic that here at Shechem, the people are making this wicked man king? Okay, so in Genesis chapter 35, 1 through 4, let's find out what happened at Shechem. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Ironic, right? What does Jacob say? Family, if we're going to follow the Lord, I need all of your idols. And what does the family do? They bring all of the idols. And what does Jacob do? He buries them under the terebinth tree that was at Shechem. So what does Shechem represent? We are getting rid of our idols and following God. What's happening here in Judges at Shechem? By the oak or the pillar of Shechem, we don't even know if it's the same tree, but it's close by, what are they doing? They're making this wicked man king. Okay? Joshua 24.1 Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Okay, in the book of Joshua, at the end, he gathers all the tribes together at Shechem. And what does he do? In 2426, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So what does Jacob do by the tree in Shechem? We're going to bury our idols. What does Joshua do at that same area by the tree in Shechem? We're going to gather the entire nation together and we're going to read the Word of God, symbolizing obedience. So what has Shechem represented in Israel's history up to this point? Getting rid of idols, obeying God. What's it being used for now? We're going to gather at this sacred place where our forefathers, Jacob and Joshua, gathered for sacred issues of getting rid of idols and reading the word of the Lord. And we're going to make this wicked son of a concubine our king who's just killed 70 or 69 of his stepbrothers, Gideon's sons. Okay? But who escapes? Jotham. Jotham City. No, that's Gotham City. Part two, Jotham. Jotham the Preacher. This is a little bit comical. You kind of have to read between the lines here, but let's read verses 7 through 21, and let's find out what the youngest son, Jotham, does. He hid when this happened and escaped. Verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, 
he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the grapevine, You come and reign over us. But the grapevine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you've risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, and with this house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Okay. Now here's the issue. Jotham can't just go into the town and confront everybody, right? What's going to happen if he goes in there? These reckless thugs are going to kill him. So he goes up on Mount Gerizim. He goes up on a tall mountain. And what does he do? He yells down to the city and he preaches a sermon, okay? Jotham the preacher. Now, Jotham, the name, his name means the Lord is honest. The Lord is honest. And what we have here, and maybe you recognized it, we have here one of the finest examples in all of Scripture of a fable. Now, what's a fable? A fable, by definition, is a short story that teaches a moral lesson, usually involving creatures, animals, plants, inanimate objects, speaking or acting like human characters. So what's this fable all about? He goes up there, and what does he say? The trees, verse 8 the trees went out to anoint a king over them. Okay, so this is an example of the anointing of kings, but he's talking about trees. So there's four trees in this story. What's the first tree that they ask? The olive tree, okay? These three trees represent the three most prized plants or trees in Israel. The first is the olive tree. The olive tree was probably the most valuable tree in all of Israel. Why? Well, olive oil was used for cooking. It was used for medicine. It was used for a lubricant. It was used for perfume. It was used for fuel for lamps. It was used for anointing prophets, priests, and kings. So the trees go to the olive tree and say, Hey, you be king over us. And what's the olive tree's answer? 
I'm not going to leave what my purpose is to rule over you. Why would I rule over you when my purpose is to provide? What does he say there? Verse 9, the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? No, I'm not going to go rule over you. God's created me for a purpose and I'm going to live out that purpose. Okay, so the trees go to the next tree. What's the next tree on the list? The fig tree. Have you had your fig newton today? The fig tree. A fig was either eaten fresh, like a fig, like a fig newton, or you could bake it in a cake. And so they say to the fig tree, hey, why don't you be our king? And what does the fig tree say? No. Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? No. I'm a fig tree. I'm designed to be like sweet and taste good. Same thing the olive tree. I'm to provide fuel. I'm to provide medicine. I'm to provide um, cooking oil. I'm, I'm to provide anointing oil. I'm not to rule over you. Okay, so olive tree says no, I'm not going to rule over you. Fig tree says no, I'm not going to grow over you, rule over you. So what's the third one? The grapevine. Okay, the grapevine is what? Back in that culture, a source of wine and good cheer. And so what does the grapevine say? No, I'm, I'm going to provide wine and sweet drink for kings and, and others, and I'm not going to do that. Okay, so what's the fourth plant they come to? Verse 14, the bramble, which was probably a thorn bush. Okay? So they've been turned down by three of the top trees in Israel. Olive tree, fig tree. Now, again, this is a fable. Trees don't talk. Trees don't rule. Trees don't answer back. This is a fable. Okay, but what does the thorn bush do? The, the thorn bush says, yeah, I'll, I'll reign over you. Why don't you come take, look at verse 15. The bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Now, what's the irony about that? Okay, what does a thorn bush offer? Anything positive. Okay. What does an olive tree offer? Good stuff, right? Fig tree, fig newtons. Grapevine, good wine or grape juice if we're good Baptists. Okay, so um, the fourth plant is a thorn bush. It has nothing positive, but it accepts the offer to be king. And even what's even more funny is he says, hey, come get refuge under me. Are you going to find refuge under a thorn bush? Okay, so let's just stop here and ask, what's the point of the fable? Who's the bramble? Who's the thorn bush? Abimelech. Okay, so basically Jotham is using this object lesson to say, you people, Shechemites, if I, could use a, if I can use an analogy about trees, you guys are pretty much idiots. Because you have accepted, here's his main point, you have accepted extremely unqualified leadership, and that's extremely foolish. You want a thorn bush as your king? You're going to get pricked. You want a bramble as your king? You're going to get hurt. And what does the bramble say there? If it doesn't work out, let fires come out and devour me. Okay? So this is an object lesson for the nation or the city of Shechem 
to understand the foolishness of why they chose Abimelech. And what does Jotham say to them? Verses 16 through 20, he's basically saying, listen, if, man, if, if you guys have done the right thing, and Abimelech's such a great king, even though he's risen up to kill all of Gideon's sons and you're not remembering all the good things that Gideon did for you, if, if you've done this in good faith, if you've done this in integrity, if you guys have a clear conscience and Abimelech's this great king, great. But if not, if he's wicked and you're wicked and this is something foolish, then what does he say there in verse um, 20? But if not, and remember this, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire from out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo devour Abimelech. If this doesn't work out, both of you are going to be destroyed by fire. Abimelech's going to destroy you, Shechemites, and Shechemites, you're going to, you're going to destroy each other by fire. Okay? Now, let's just talk about unqualified leadership for a moment. This is a very poignant example of unqualified leadership that the people accepted. What should they have done? First of all, let's back up. What should Gideon have done? Not had a concubine. Well, let's just back up, okay? What should the leaders of Shechem have done when Abimelech came to them? We're not going to give you the money. It's not wise to have a king... And after he killed the 70 sons of Gideon, who had just, who was Gideon to them? He was their leader. He'd saved them. What should they have done after that? They should have gotten on their phone. They should have texted the other tribes and said, hey, we've got a renegade guy here who just killed all of Gideon's children. We need help from the other tribes to put this guy to death. Somebody should have stood up and said, we're not going to stand for this for you to be our king. You're unqualified. You're wicked. Just because you say you're a relative, you have no business being king over us. And by the way, we should have never anointed you at Shechem. Remember our history at Shechem? Nobody stood up and said that. So they very easily accepted unqualified, poor leadership. Now let's talk about some observations from this. Observation number one. Rulers have a tendency, not all. Rulers have a tendency for power for all the wrong reasons narcissistic self-interest. Who's Abimelech most concerned with? Abimelech himself. I want to make myself king. I want to be in power. I want to rule over you. I'm bloody, vengeance, you know, bloodthirsty. I'm going to go kill all these brothers. Okay? Now we understand that, right? Number two is harder to understand. Number two observation, in God's discipline, people sometimes get the leader they deserve. Wicked people bring wicked leaders upon themselves. Okay? Is that not a principle? It's almost like God was saying, Israel, if this is the kind of leader you want, if this is the kind of people you're going to be, if you're going to forget me and you're going to follow after the Baals and you're going to rush headlong into idolatry, great. I'll give you exactly what you want. I will give you a wicked king in my discipline. 
Sometimes God in His discipline gives a wicked people the leader they deserve as a, as a, as a source of discipline. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, that's Old Testament. In today's world, you're not going to have leaders in the church. You, you could have this. <laughs> okay, so you're going to have one guy come in and say, hey, make me pastor. And then he's going to go kill all of his brothers. And then you're going to anoint him the pastor at the oak tree of Shechem. And then everything. That's not probably going to happen. But the principle is the same. Here's a question. Why do churches sometimes accept unqualified leaders to be their pastors or their elders? Have you thought about that? Let's just back up for a moment. Have you heard of a church? Have you been in a church? Do you know of a church where there was unqualified leadership in pastors and elders and deacons? And what do I mean by unqualified? The priests? Okay. Okay. Before you answer the question about what is unqualified leadership, it's probably helpful us to say what qualifies a pastor for leadership. Okay? So I'm going to ask you guys to keep your finger in Judges. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul is very explicit. Paul is very clear about the qualifications of pastors slash elders slash overseers. It's all the same office. So 1 Peter, I mean, sorry, 1 Timothy, not Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay? If you want to know what God's biblical standard is for a pastor, this is where you go to find it. Okay? So let's read this together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, okay, overseer, same thing as a pastor, an elder, it's all the same function, all the same office. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that he may not fall into the disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now we could spend a long time talking about each one of these qualifications. But if you look at that list, basically, in a nutshell, a pastor has to be able to teach God's Word. He has to be able to lead God's church. He's got to have godly character. And he has to be somebody that's not a recent convert, or he could become conceited 
and he's got to be not given to drunkenness. He's got to be hospitable, all these different things. Okay, so these are the qualifications of a pastor. So let me ask the question again. Why do churches sometimes accept unqualified leaders to be their pastors? I've got some ideas, but I want to hear yours. Okay, what do you mean by peer pressure? Okay, the congregation wants somebody. Okay, so let me give you an example, especially out here in northeastern Colorado. Okay, most of the churches out here in the smaller towns are small churches, are they not? Okay, most besides Emmanuel and churches in Sterling, on these outlying farm towns that we have, most of the churches probably are what? 20, 30, 40, 50 people. Okay, if you're a church of 30, 40, 50 people, and you're out here in northeastern Colorado, are you, are you getting a lot of people sending your resumes to, I want to come out to Fleming, or I want to come out to, ha okay, so you're not on the radar screen. So a lot of times, because churches are desperate, and I'm using that, hopefully you don't like take offense at that, sometimes churches are desperate for anybody to lead because somebody's better than nobody, they will settle for somebody less than biblically qualified just so they can have somebody fill the pulpit and preach. And what happens when a church does that? You have unqualified leaders. And that can happen in a bunch of ways. They can be teaching weird things because they don't know their theology. Uh, they could be um, wanting to take over the church. They could be stealing money. I mean, there's, I can tell you a lot of horror stories of Churches I know that were destroyed by unqualified leadership. And if the people would have just done their due diligence, and so here's the, here's the catch-22, here's the problem oftentimes. Sometimes churches don't know there are qualifications. What do they think? Well, the guy showed up, he can preach, we might as well hire him. Okay? Most churches may not have a process to vet your churches need to make it hard for a pastor to come. Okay, I'm just telling you that. And I don't mean that in a way like make it impossible. I had to go through a lot to get to do this church. Okay, I had to fill out the big old elder qualification packet that probably took me at least a good day if I added up all the hours to fill out. I had to be interviewed by the elders. I had to be interviewed by the search committee. I had to have criminal background check. I had to have references. I had to have my credentials. And then when I came before you, I had to preach before all of you. And then that afternoon, we had an open forum where you could ask me any question you want that lasted a couple of hours. And even then, you as a church voted. So there's a lot of steps it took for me to become your pastor. And I appreciated that because it showed me that this church wanted somebody who was qualified. Now, I think the reason that sometimes churches accept unqualified leaders is for a bunch of different reasons. One is they just don't know. They, don't, they haven't been taught what the qualifications are. Number two, they're desperate for a warm body, so anybody's better than nobody. Peer pressure. There's a power broker group in the church that says, this is who we want. And then, well, I mean, there's some red flags, but I think he's going to be okay type thing. We'll go along with the crowd. 
Okay? Let's turn to Titus chapter 1. Two, two books over. <clears throat> Titus chapter 1. And let me just show you another list in case you think that 1 Timothy is the only place that shows up. Okay, so Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete. Okay, so Paul's writing to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete. Crete's an island. So that you might put what remain into order. What do you need to do, Titus? You need to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay. Very similar list. Okay. So what I wanted to show you from the New Testament is, number one, there are qualifications for pastors that are very clearly laid out. Second thing I wanted to show you is that sometimes churches will accept unqualified leaders for whatever reason. In the book of Judges, the nation was willing to accept an unqualified leader because they had forgotten the Lord. They had gotten into idolatry. They did not have good theology. They did not have good spiritual life. And so the whole nation was willing to just accept Abimelech as their king. Now here's the point. Whenever God's people are quick to accept unqualified leadership, it never ends well. Eventually it's going to blow up. Eventually, it's going to cause problems. Maybe not immediately, but and maybe God intervenes in His grace, but oftentimes it doesn't go well. Okay, so let's continue to see what happens in this account. What was the prophecy, if you will, in the fable? Not necessarily the prophecy, but what did Jotham say? You guys are going to destroy each other. If this thing is not of God, if this thing's not in good faith, if, if there's no integrity there, you guys are going to destroy each other by fire. So let's pick up. This is the largest part of the, the chapter. This is the longest chapter, one of the longest chapters in Judges. Okay, so let's read verses 22 through 55. And um, let's just read it, okay? Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Okay, we're back in Judges, chapter 9. <coughs> Verse 23, we'll come back to this, but don't freak out. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved on to Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. 
And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not son of Jerubal? And is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, right, let's just stop right there. Okay, let's just stop right there. Verse 23, God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and Shechem. Now, you can ask me theologically what that means, and I will tell you theologically it means God sent an evil spirit between... Don't ask me to explain it. What I can say this is that God can execute judgment on sin by using sinful means. God in no way is evil himself, nor does he commit evil in ordaining or sending an evil spirit to judge the treachery between Abimelech and Shechem. Let's just ask a question. Are the leaders of Shechem innocent? Is Abimelech innocent? Are any of these parties innocent? Do both of these parties deserve judgment? Yes. Does God have a right to judge them? Does God have a right to judge them in any way he sees fit? Can God judge them by sending an evil spirit between them so they fight against each other? Yes. Now, we may not understand all of that, but God is doing this as a way of judgment to bring to pass what Jotham had predicted was going to happen. But right when you think that something's going to happen, you have this guy Gaal, or Gaal. Who is Gaal? He emerges as this leader who's quote-unquote going to save Shechem. Now, here's what Gaal's name means. It means to hate or to loathe. But ironically, it can also sound like kinsman redeemer. Remember when we did Ruth a couple of years ago, or what was it last year? Boaz was the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Okay, so there's a Goel and there's a Gaal. Goel means redeemer. Oh, he's going to come save us. Gaal means hate or loathe. So play on words. Is he a redeemer or is he a guy to be hated? Let's find out what he does. So what, is, what does Gaal do? Hey, Shechem, let's get drunk and have a party. So that's what he does. They go into the temple of the false god. Everybody's drinking up a storm, and he gets all brash. And what happens when you start drinking? What does he do? He stands up and says, now why are we following Abimelech for these past three years? Who's Abimelech? You guys need to make me the king. And, and if Abimelech shows up right now, I'll say, hey, bring your army. I can, bring your army, increase your army. Come on out and meet me. Now, that's the alcohol speaking, right? Gaal is brash. He thinks he can save them. He thinks he should be king. And in this drunken stupor of everybody partying, he says, hey, we can t I, can take, I can take Abimelech. That's no problem. Now, who's Zebel? Zebel is Abimelech's right-hand man. He overhears the plot Okay, he's probably in the tavern. Everybody's getting drunk, and you've seen the movies. You can picture this. In your, everybody's up there drinking and going crazy, and Gaul's up there making a fool of himself. And over in the corner, there's Zebel, 
just watching the whole thing. And then he's basically the bodyguard or the right-hand man of King Abimelech. He's going to go back and tell him. So let's, let's pick up in the story. Verse 30, okay? When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are, within, are, within, who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gaul the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where's your mouth now? You who said, Who's Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaul and his relatives, so they could not dwell at Shechem. Okay, what happens? Zebul goes back to Abimelech and says, hey, this weirdo in Shechem is starting an uprising. He got drunk at a party, and he thinks he can take you out. So why don't you set an ambush? And um, so Zebul goes out there and thinks he's all that, but who's waiting for him? Abimelech, and so Abimelech comes out and basically just routes um, Gaul and, and sends him packing, and basically Abimelech, again, rules over the people. So, you know, Gaul's failed attempt to take over uh, doesn't last, doesn't happen, okay? So, let's pick up at verse 42. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt." So what's he, what's he continuing to do? I mean, he's continuing to basically rule viciously. He, Shechem, who first pledged their allegiance to Abimelech, now have switched their allegiance to Gaul, and Gaul's been routed. And so what does Abimelech do? Well, if that's the way you're going to play, I'm just going to go kill the whole city. So he, he just levels the whole city. All right? Now, the leaders of Shechem probably are running from the hills. They're hiding out because they're the, they're the aristocrats. They're the leaders of the city. They're not the army out there fighting. But they hear, we're in big trouble because our army's been wiped out. We better go hide. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 46. 
When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberit. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do as I've done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Okay, so what's going on? The rulers, the aristocracy, they're like, we got to hide out. So they go and they hide in this tower, this stronghold. So a thousand of them are, are huddled into this tower. And what does Abimelech do? Well, that's easy. They're all in one place. Let's go burn them down. So he goes and starts chopping down wood and says, hey, guys, follow me. So they all go chop wood, and basically they ransack the tower, and everybody's trapped in there, and they burn the place down. Now, what did Jotham say was going to happen? Abimelech is going to come against you with fire. So did that happen? Did the people of Shechem get burned by fire? Yes. What was the other half of the prophecy? The people of Shechem would burn Abimelech by fire. Okay, so let's continue to see what happens in verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. Okay, different city, same situation, right? They've heard this guy's crazy. This guy burns people down. We better hide. So they all go and hide in this tower again. Now, verse 52, And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. What's he thinking? Hey, this worked before. Let's just burn him again. Look at verse 53. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his fathers in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. Okay, Abimelech's downfall. So what's Abimelech thinking? Let's burn down this tower the way we did before. But then, this time, it's a nameless woman. Her name's not J.L. with the tent peg. This nameless woman does what? She gets a big stone, she throws it on top of the tower, and what does it happen? It falls on his head. Now, it does not kill him, but it pretty much like maims him. And what does he say to his armor bearer? I do not want to die in infamy having a woman drop a stone on my head so that when they write stories about King Abimelech, all they can say is he died by the hands of a woman. Please don't let me die by the hands of a woman. Kill me 
Now, so what does his armor bearer do? Kills him. He wants to die with dignity, okay? I don't want to die. Now think about the irony here. Who was Abimelech? Son of a concubine, went into the leaders of Shechem, smooth-talked him and said, hey, I will be your king. They were so convinced they paid him money. He got a bunch of worthless thugs to be his bodyguards. He goes in, he kills all of his brothers. Jotham hides out, goes up on the hill and says, people of Shechem, let me tell you a parable about these trees. You're getting a thorn bush as your king and fire's going to come out and destroy all of you. And then Abimelech continues to go on a rampage. He kills, he kills, he kills, he kills. And then finally, what happens to him? Some random act of, act of violence, per se. He's killed by a nameless woman. So in verses 56 and 57, it comes back to God. Now, what's, what's been surprisingly absent in this entire story is really God only shows up a few times, right? And every time God's name shows up, it's in divine judgment. So in verses 56 and 57, we see that God is the source of this judgment by having evil turn upon evil to destroy itself. And this is a direct prophetic fulfillment of Jotham's words back in verse 20. Now, what's the point of this judgment? Basically, they kill each other. Wicked Shechem is overtaken by wicked Abimelech. Wicked Abimelech destroys Shechem. Wicked Shechem, the remnant, kills Abimelech, and basically two, a wicked city and a wicked king turn on each other and they, and they basically end up killing each other. Great story, right? What's the point of all this? Well, God frequently judges sin by using evil men to destroy evil men or evil nations destroying evil nations. Now, What's the bottom line for us? Because this is a weird Old Testament story. We got another graphic depiction of a guy's skull getting crashed in, people getting burned in a tower, a guy getting drunk at a tavern saying, I'm going to go out and take them. You got parables of fig trees. What's the bottom line for us? Okay. It's the same lesson for Israel that it is for us. When God's people, that is us, forget the Lord, and are willing to accept unqualified leadership, God may bring painful discipline. He also may actually judge the leader who destroys God's people. There's a strong warning in the Bible for a person who would want to sow discord into God's church. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. I'm going to give you guys the um, Sean Cole version. Okay, So I put a little bit of parentheses in this to help you understand the Greek text. I made a you guys and a y'all, depending on what part of the country you're from. Okay, So do you not know that you, plural, you guys, y'all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all and you guys? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you guys, y'all, are that temple. Let's just stop. What will God do to a person who seeks to destroy the church? Destroy that person. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that's talking about final judgment in hell. It could be. I don't know if that's talking about temporary discipline here on earth. The point of the matter is this. There is a severe warning in the Bible for somebody that would want to go so discord, go so disunity, go try to do something that would destroy God's people. Which means that Pastors who go into churches for personal gain, for money, to try to hoard it over the flock, to try to fleece the flock, to try to do things to manipulate or um, basically exploit the flock, there is a really high judgment on those pastors because in a sense they are destroying the church and God may discipline them. Now here's the point keep saying, here's the final point. Here's the final, final point. Okay. You always know when a pastor says, here's my last point. You're looking at your watch like, I bet you he's got two or three more. Here's my final point. In conclusion, as we bring this thing to a close, my wife sometimes says, I'll say, don't ever ask your wife this if you're a pastor. So how did, how did, how did it go today? How did the preaching go? I, I tend not to ask Don that because she's very, very kind. But occasionally, very, very rarely she'll say, sometimes you had a hard time landing the plane today, Sean. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't land, you could have landed the plane a little earlier, <laughs> which means I went a little bit too long. So that's her kind way of saying, you probably went a little bit too long. But here is the final point. Judges chapter 9 shows Israel that destruction can come from within as well as from without. Up to this point, before we get to chapter 9, where has the enemy of Israel come from? Pagan nations, the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, all these ites. Where is the opposition, where is the enemy coming from in chapter 9? Is it from a pagan country? It's right from within. So here's the thing we need to realize. Sin and destruction can come within the church, usually through idolatry, through false teaching, and unqualified leadership, as well as from without, usually by persecution and pressure from culture. Okay, so there are two sources of pressure or Destruction, let's just use the word pressure, conflict, destruction. Okay, on the church. Two sources. Sometimes it comes from inside the church. Sometimes it comes from outside the church. Okay, so outside the church, it would be like persecution, It would be like hostility from the culture, 
um, you know, you guys are called bigots, you're narrow-minded, it's the, it's the culture on the outside putting pressure on the church. The other type of conflict or pressure, destruction, can come from inside. This is where you have false teaching. This is where you have disunity. This is where you have unqualified leaders. And both of these are dangerous. But here's my question. Okay, so let me just put the question up there. Which type of opposition or dysfunction is easier to detect? Now, I have an answer, but I'm not saying it's absolute. Usually, it's easier to detect pressure coming from the outside, is it not? Because you can say, man, we're a church. We're trying hard to, to preach the gospel. We're trying hard to stay true to Christianity. We're, we're trying to stay true to the claims of Christ. And, and the culture's coming against us. We can see the enemy. We can see the onslaughts from the culture. We can see what they're saying about us. We can see the hostility. We can see the persecution. We can see the name calling. We can see the media. We can see all the politics. We can see it all coming at us. It's very easy to see. What's often hard to see is on the inside when you're wrapped up in it. It's that the inside pressure, I think, is sometimes harder to detect because you can get comfortable. And you may think, well, it's not going to come from inside. The enemy of the church is never inside the church. It's always outside, right? No. When you have unqualified leadership, when you have disunity, when you have false teachings, when you have idolatry, when you have all these things creeping up, it brings pressure inside. Now, what's really, really dangerous is if you have both happening at the same time. Okay? So, a church needs to make sure it has qualified leadership. A church needs to make sure it is unified. And a church needs to make sure it has sound teaching. And a church has to be diligent in that. The church has to really concentrate on that. It can't lower the standards on theology. It can't lower the standards on leadership. It can't lower the standards on unity. Those types of things don't just happen by osmosis. The church has got to diligently protect those things. At the same time, a church has to be prepared that if they are teaching sound doctrine and there is qualified leadership, and they are unified, and they are preaching Jesus is the only way, and they are holding fast to the Scriptures, there's going to be persecution from outside. We need to expect that. Okay. So I don't think you're ever in a church going to ever be immune from outside pressure, inside pressure. It's something that every church has to be aware of. And so that's why the Bible's full of these examples in judges of unqualified leadership as well as the actual teachings of what a qualified leader looks like that we looked at at 1 Timothy chapter 3.